Hello. Now, before I jump into this episode, I want to let you know about a free workshop that I'm going to be running in early November 2022. So if you're listening to this around the time of release of this episode, then be sure to save your spot. Uh, In my free online workshop, I'm going to take you through the four universal factors that will make or break your project. So uh, I'll be sharing with you what these universal factors are, how to avoid them derailing your project, and then also how to use them to your advantage instead. It's going to be really helpful information whether you're planning to build or renovate or perhaps you've just got started in your design process. Um, I know it's going to be uh, really useful for you. So you can choose from a lunchtime or an evening session. Uh, I'm also going to be sending out a replay. So head to Undercover architect.com forward slash register that's r-e-g-i-s-t-e-r you can register your details you can choose your time i would love to see you there now let me get on with this episode so this is episode 255 and in it i'm going to talk through some loves of mine when it comes to home design and also some of the trends that we're seeing as well now with each of my loves i'm going to be sharing what to consider and key tips to remember if you're exploring them for your future home and if you'd like to grab a full transcript of this episode plus information on the resources that i'll be discussing You can do that by heading to undercoverarchitect.com forward slash 255. That's the numbers 255. Now let's dive in. I begin by acknowledging the traditional owners of country throughout Australia, and I recognise the continuing connection to lands, waters, skies and communities. I pay my respect to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander cultures and to elders both past and present. If we haven't met before, I'm Amelia Lee. Based in northern New South Wales, Australia, I'm a wife, mum and architect, and I've worked in the architectural industry for over 27 years now. Having worked on over 250 projects, mainly residential family homes, as well as significantly renovating three homes of my own with my hubby, whilst our three kids were babies, toddlers and even older, I have a personal and professional understanding of the joy, challenges, stresses and excitement of making your family home a reality. In mid-2014, I started Undercover Architect, and it's an online business to help and teach homeowners like you how to get it right when designing, building, and renovating your family home. Undercover Architect is all about giving you access to the industry knowledge and insights you need to avoid the mistakes and dramas that can cost you thousands, tens of thousands, and even hundreds of thousands of dollars. And it's about leveling the playing field so that the world of renovating and building doesn't seem so mysterious and you can be the active driver in your project, navigating it with know-how and confidence. Undercover Architect helps and teaches homeowners through this podcast, the website, and our online courses and programs, including my flagship program, Home Method. I truly believe that when you know the questions to ask, the steps to take, and the best way to create a home that works, feels great, and that you feel great in, you can enjoy the process of building and renovating, as well as the home that you move into at the end of this ambitious journey. Consider Undercover Architect your secret ally, whoever you're working with and whatever your location, your budget or your dreams. Grab access to my free online workshop, Your Project Plan, and learn super helpful information to save time, money and stress in your reno or new build. You can find it at undercoverarchitect.com forward slash project plan. That's P-R-O-J-E-C-T-P-L-A-N. Now, let's get on to the episode. 
Now, if you had to listen to episode 253, in it I actually talked about designing for resale versus designing for yourself. And I gave you some tips and questions to ask so that you can figure out what is the best approach for you. After I published that episode, I had someone message me to ask if there are certain features that I advise for all homes. They said, for instance, you mentioned clients feeling pressured to put an ensuite on the primary bedroom. It would be very unusual to buy or build a family home with only one bathroom. What are your thoughts? So my response to this question was, it will depend on the area and the financial situation. When I worked at Mervac, which is a large residential development company, there were definitely non-negotiables based on the market level, the ideal buyer, the location and the desired sales price. So if it's a development play, then those things might matter, but there really is no one size fits all here. I went on to share with them that the only time that we personally, that my family have lived with an ensuite was when we added one into a home that we were renovating. We used it then for a couple of months before we actually sold that home. The house that we live in now, it has three bathrooms. That was the way that we bought it, but only one of the showers works <laughs> and there's no bath in any of those three bathrooms. So it's a long story. That's the situation. It's been that way for years. So all five of us, we share that one bathroom that has the shower. Now, I've known lots of clients that only wanted one living area or only wanted one bathroom or wanted two main bedrooms because there are a couple that don't share a bed at night. That's actually far more common than people realise. Uh, or they wanted three living areas because they actually play video games against each other in separate places within the same house. Or they wanted two home offices uh, with one being where they could go to when coming home without the family actually knowing that they'd even got home, that they'd arrived. Or they wanted an ensuite to every kid's bedroom. Or they wanted to keep the whole home under 150 square metres. Or they wanted to have an island bench. Or they definitely didn't want to have an island bench. And on and on and on. You know, we like to think that everyone designs homes in the same way, but it's just not the case. Most of what I teach here at Undercover Architect is focused on timeless, functional design. To me, design isn't prescriptive and it isn't about how something looks. Design is about how something works. And design that can be flexible and adapt to the changing needs of your family as you live in the home and then also adapt to the future owners who'll come to live in your home in the decades ahead. Homes that suit you now and over the long term. And homes that feel fantastic to live in because they're thermally comfortable, they're energy efficient, they're full of lovely natural light and ventilation and there's a sense of order and calmness about them which helps you feel relaxed and at peace where there's space to be together and to be apart and a great connection with outdoors that optimises the natural environment, even in the most urban of areas. That to me is the kind of design to aim for, designing for sustainability, enoughness, for sufficiency, for durability and a long-term view. And then inside that framework, you can inject what is relevant and special to you, the spaces and the things that you love, the design styles and the trends that resonate with you that you feel authentically actually reflect you and the things that you know you have always loved and always been attracted to, the things that actually have meaning to you. So what are my loves when it comes to home design? Well, I thought I'd share some particular features or elements that I think that can be great to incorporate in your home design for a range of reasons that I'll go through. And look, this isn't an exhaustive list like the pet hates in home design that I shared in episode 244. This is just a collection of a few that might be helpful for you to consider in your future home and project journey. So let's kick them off. Now, one of the first things that I love is window seats. Why do I love window seats? Well, I feel that they're a great way to add extra functionality without a lot of extra space. 
You may have listened to my conversation with Jane Hilliard from Designful back in episodes 237 and 238, where she and I discussed window seats as a great design device to economise on floor area in a home. There's something that many designers and architects will use in compact designs, largely because they can work so well to improve the multifunctional nature of a space. When I talk about window seats, I'm referring to the inclusion of a seating zone built into a window area internally in the home. So the seat itself is almost like an oversized internal window sill or a ledge. And sometimes the window seat is a boxed out element that sits within the wall or protrudes from the wall. Window seats can be the depth of a traditional bench or seat, say 450 to 550 millimetres, or they can be deeper and more like a day bed, which means that they can get to being anywhere between you know, 800 millimetres and 1,000 millimetres deep or a metre deep. And they can vary in length depending on the space that you have for them, but generally I find the minimum length is probably about 1.5 metres, which will accommodate someone sitting upright with their legs outstretched within the window seat and not feeling too cramped. And they can be as long as you want them to be and your, of course your budget and your floor plan allows, understanding that you may need to review the window configuration based on the length of the window seat itself. They're generally positioned at seating height, so between 450 millimetres and 550 millimetres off the floor, depending on how you want to sit on them. So if you want to have your feet touching the floor when you sit at, you know, on your window seat and you have your knees at 90 degrees, then have a look at a dining chair and its seating heights as a guide for the dimensions that are going to work for you. As the name suggests, in a window seat, there will be a window involved. So that window, it can be the full length of the seat. Uh, or it can only be part of it. The windowsill can be at the same height as the seat itself. So the glass comes all the way down to the seat. Uh, and the whole feature of the window seat seems like almost like a reveal in a deep picture frame that's built out in the wall of the home. Or the windowsill can sit higher than the seat itself. Uh, it can be punched out of the wall above the seat. And the window seat then just be like a built-in bench in front of the window with some solid backing behind where you sit before the windowsill starts. Now, the seat itself in a window seat, it can be upholstered, it can be left in its built material. Many will use timber and they'll use window seats as a really lovely joinery feature to add character to a space and a focal point in a room, plus to shape that view that's beyond the room itself. There is so much to love about window seats and window seats, they can be a seating area in and of themselves. They can be a nook to curl up and to read or to have a sleep, depending on the depth of the bench of the seat itself. And they can create a really intimate indoor-outdoor connection because you're sitting up against the glass with that view to outside. So when those windows might be open, it can be really like you're sitting, you know, in the house but also in the garden, sort of in this in-between space. And that can be fantastic as an experience in a home. They can incorporate storage within the seat itself, below the seat or around the window. Some window seats, they're actually a seating area that's created within a built-in storage wall of shelving that wraps itself around a window opening. And then window seats, they can also be a way to provide seating alongside one of your, you know, along one side of your dining table, especially when space is limited and you don't have enough room to have chairs either side of the dining table and then space to walk around it. You can have that dining table pulled up to a window seat uh, to provide the seating along one side. And then you can have the window seat also be somewhere where you can sit within itself and you can stretch out and you can sit, you know, uh, with your legs up on the window seat and not at the dining table itself. 
Now, when done well and located well in a plan, a window seat can be like its own little living space. It can be the way to create that all-important space to be a part in a family home. It can give a place for someone to retreat to, but to still feel connected in the activity of the home. And it can be located in your living area or your dining area, as I mentioned. But I've also seen window seats work well in circulation zones, uh, on the edge of courtyards, in bedrooms, off kitchens and in upper floor hallways. They're great for creating a destination space, a relaxing space, another way to improve the indoor-outdoor connection of a home and also to bring in lovely natural light and breezes. Window seats will vary in cost depending on their detailing, the structural requirements and the material choices. Some end up being quite costly because of the way the window seat is boxed in as a big or a deep reveal uh, or because they're cantilevered out of the wall's main structure. So if you can build the window seat so it's actually structurally supported at its base by your floor structure as opposed to it being cantilevered off the wall, then of course it will be simpler to frame up. Now, honestly, I think I could probably do a whole podcast on the detailing and construction of window seats on its own, but I'm going to leave it there. And I've got a collection of window seat ideas and inspiration for you all in a board on Undercover Architects Pinterest account. So I'll pop a link to that in the free resources for this episode. If you're wanting to incorporate one, then make sure you discuss it with your designer, with your build team early on so that you can do it efficiently and effectively in your project. Now, the next thing that I love, which can actually be thought about in the detailing of your window seat is this, window hoods. So this may sound like a super strange thing to love, but there's a few reasons for this. Firstly, window hoods are the exterior awnings or covers that you have directly above the windows and also glass doors of your home. Functionally, window hoods can be incredibly useful to provide shade and weather protection to your windows. If your home design is not using eaves or the eaves that it has don't effectively shade or keep rain off your window openings, then window hoods can be a really useful addition to manage that. If you have a lot of wall space above your window and the door openings in your home, you may actually find that the eaves are too far away and they aren't deep enough to provide sufficient shade on the windows or they only partially shade the windows in the warmer months. When you review the geometry of the angle of the sunlight coming into your home at certain times of the year, a window hood directly above the window will generally not need to be as deep or project as far off the house as an eave that sits further above that window opening. So they can be a really great way to provide shade and weather protection more efficiently. Now, another reason that I love window hoods is because they can really, you know, what they can do to the look of a home. So window hoods, they're a great way to add an aesthetic flavor to your home. You can design window hoods in so many different ways from, you know, much more traditional, even Queenslander style metal hoods through to contemporary sharp and linear hoods. And then you can often create the simplest design in a home and yet the type of window hoods that you add can totally transform the look and the feel of the home overall. Window hoods will also give a play of moving shadows on a home's facade and that can add depth and animation to the look of the home across the day and year. I actually like to think of window hoods as the eyebrows of the house. So if the roof's the hat, the (laughs) the windows are the eyes, the window hoods are the eyebrows. Now, a couple of things that I like to think about when it comes to window hoods. Usually they only need to be somewhere between 450 millimetres and 600 millimetres deep when they're positioned directly above your 
your windows to provide decent shade in summer. They may need to be deeper depending on your design, your location, your climate and your required shading. So always do that geometrical study, looking at the angles and then you can figure it out for yourself. Now, depending on what you do build them from, you may need to provide extra structure within the wall framing itself to support those window hoods. Uh, there was a, a series of homes uh, that I did when I was at Mervac uh, in Balimba in a residential project development that we did there. And I designed a window hood that was made from powder coated aluminium frame that was uh, in a box or a square section. Uh, so that frame was made up and then it was sandwiched either side with compressed fiber cement sheet. So these awnings, they sat directly over the top of the window. And then uh, we had powder coated metal tube struts that basically suspended from the outer edge of those window hoods back to the facade at an angle to be able to suspend those window hoods above the windows. Now, because of the compressed fibre cement sheet that we used on those window hoods, the overall window hood was quite heavy. We had to use compressed fibre cement sheet because it's much more um, uh, resilient to weather and water when it's in a horizontal position, And but it is quite a heavy material. So the hoods themselves, they were being installed after the cladding went on the home. So the struts were necessary for suspending and stabilizing the hoods. We couldn't just cantilever the hoods off the facade uh, where they were fixed above the windows. So to make the connections of those struts nice and neat, because what I wanted to avoid was a big, you know, bolted plate where the strut met the back, met back at the house at the facade. So um, what I detailed instead was I detailed some little T-shaped cleats. Uh, so little T-shaped brackets made from steel. They got fixed onto the timber frame of the house before the cladding went on. And then if you imagine the T, so the top of the T gets fixed against the frame and then the leg of the T, it projects out off the frame and the cladding uh, and it's and it's longer than the cladding, the thickness of the cladding. So that basically as the cladding got installed, it got cut around the leg of this T bracket. And then the leg of this T bracket protruded past the face of the cladding in a really nice little sort of cleat that came out of the face of the cladding. And so that then gave a structural point for those struts to be able to affix to. So it was done very neatly and it was structurally stable and you didn't have this great big clunky bolted plate detail on the facade above the window hoods. Now, not all window hoods will require struts, okay? But if they do, that's a nice detail for you to think about using to be able to incorporate them well. One of the hoods that uh, that is a strutless window hood that I re regularly recommend to my home method members is a product called Hecker Hoods. That's H-E-K-A. Now it's a folded powder coated aluminium flat window hood that comes in a couple of different depths uh, off the shelf and it can be face fixed to a the wall above a window or a door uh, to where the structural lintel is. Now because of the lightness of the aluminium it doesn't need additional struts and it's folded outer edge provides some stiffness to it. It is lightweight though okay. I think you probably could have stood on the window hoods that I designed for Mervac. <laughs> you won't be standing on a, a hecker hood. Um, so it really is up to you kind of what you want to create and how you want it to look and the uh, you know ultimate sort of effect and impact that you're you're trying to to produce for your home. 
when you're using metal hoods or any kind of window hood, you really discuss with your builder whether it needs to be connected in a way that actually gets flashed into the cladding. You can't really just butt a window hood up to the cladding and then let water and gunk pond and sit on top of where those two connection points are because it'll eventually uh, build up and then it'll deteriorate at that point and it'll work its way into walls. Particularly if you're on timber cladding, you'll find that you'll just rot things. So in my experience, you either need to flash it into the cladding so that the water stays out of that connection between the wood, the hood and the cladding altogether or the water needs to be able to track through in a small way between the hood and the cladding without getting stuck or ponding at all and, and gunge not building up. So, you, you know, in most cases you can achieve that, that water running through and it still provide the weather protection um, that you need uh, and that the window hood will shed uh, most of the water landing above that window. So again, conversations with your designer, conversations with your builder to see how you're going to best incorporate this for your home and make sure that you review your design and the, the location that you're in, the sun and how it moves across your site and see whether including window hoods or eyebrows to your home would be a good addition to provide better shade and weather protection and an aesthetic effect that you might be chasing. Now, the next love that I have are skylights in bathrooms. The first, uh, when I first moved out of home in my 20s, I actually lived in a terrace house in Surrey Hills. So I grew up in Sydney. I went to the University of New South Wales and about halfway through my degree, I moved into a terrace house in Surrey Hills with a school friend of mine. And the bathroom in that home, it was on the upper level uh, and there was a skylight over the shower. And in terrace homes, which can often be dark through the middle because obviously you've got neighbours on either side of you and then you have light at either end of these very sort of long skinny plans. That skylight in that bathroom, it gave so much light to that bathroom. And then when we left the door open, we could get that natural light into the rest of the upper floor. Now, ever since then, and that experience of being in that bathroom with that skylight, I have absolutely loved including and suggesting skylights in bathrooms where budget and layout allows for a few reasons. And we have quite a few Home Method members who include these skylights in their bathrooms. And honestly, when you see them being um, built into their homes, the effect is just fantastic. Uh, And, you know, I I think that you've got to obviously assess your planning and your your budget. Uh, But it's really interesting. The friend that I had moved into that home with, she just recently renovated her bathrooms in her home and has she, she's included a skylight in one of the bathrooms. So the love is still strong. Now in season one of the podcast, where I talk about designing your home for orientation or to suit the movement of the sun across your site, I suggest that you can locate the wet areas in your home on the South or the West side of your home. So this is really so that you can prioritize the Northern and the Eastern sides of your home for the spaces that you spend a lot more time in during the day. Those much used spaces, those living areas, they can then benefit from well-managed sunlight and its thermal benefits at different times of the year. And then the less used spaces in your home where you're not spending long periods of time or that you're in early in the day or later in the evening, you know, they can then be located on those more challenging sides of your site orientation wise. However, we are human and natural light is a huge player in our well-being and our anxiety levels, in the, acti- in the activation of our circadian rhythms, in how we feel overall. And so that's why you know, that's why it is hugely important for those much used areas. But if there is a way for you to bring it into the bathroom where you actually start the day as well, then that can be really lovely too. So, and you know, to be able to create that indoor-outdoor connection so you can see sky, you can see what the weather is doing, you can have sunlight move through the bathroom over the course of the day, that can really do wonders for how a bathroom feels and how you feel in it as well. So, And it can also be really great for drying out a bathroom, managing moisture and humidity levels as well if that skylight is operable. 
Now, often I find that in single story homes or in two story homes, um, the bathrooms can become inbound on the floor plan. And so a skylight can be a great way to provide natural light. And as I said, if you make the skylight operable to get that natural ventilation into those internalized bathrooms. Sometimes too, depending on the position and the height of your neighbours, a skylight can be a really great way to provide an unobstructed view to outside that's not compromising the privacy of your bathroom in the same way that a window does. You do need to check where your neighbours are positioned though so that they don't get a clear view down through this, your skylight into your, into your bathroom or into your shower. Now, often windows in bathrooms, they need to be uh, obscure glass or small in size or positioned with high seals so as to maintain privacy. I do see skylights can often be quite generous when a floor plan and overlooking from neighbours permits it. So it really does you know, open up some opportunities for you. The type of skylights I'm referring to here are sky windows. So similar to a product like Velux, uh, of course, you know, with any window, like any window, you need to manage the thermal aspects of which direction that skylight faces and consider whether that impacts the glazing specification, the size, the orientation of the design, whether it needs to be double glazed, all of those kinds of things. Now, the skylight that we lived with in Surrey Hills, it was manually operated. But given that it's it's over a bathroom, which is a room that can usually handle getting a little sprinkle of rain, depending on where it's positioned in the room, that seemed to work for us okay. Uh, my friend that I mentioned that I lived in that home with, she installed a motorised one in her bathroom. And she said that the benefit is um, because the motorised one have rain sensors on them. And so they will start closing when it starts to rain. And she will, if she's at home and she hears it kick in and she hasn't realised it started to rain, she, it, it reminds her to go and check to pull any washing off the line so she <laughs> she really loves it now uh, other friends I have uh, they recently renovated their home they've got an old home that had an internalized bathroom uh, and they've got a hip and gable style roof so they installed one and then created this uh, this angled sort of slanting tube shaft to the skylight so the ceiling's 2.4 meters and flat and then you've got this slanting tube up to the skylight so when you sit in the bath you've got this amazing view up to the sky through this angled uh, uh, you know shaft to the skylight that's in the roof line and you know that creates a fantastic effect when you're sitting in a in an internalized bathroom with no windows to be able to get this beautiful you know view and light to outside so uh, skylights like Velux uh, and you know sky windows like that they can have they come in sizes that will fit within roof trusses so between roof trusses so they can be great additions in renovations so that you can bring that natural light in and to also include in new builds fairly simply as well and you can add lots of drama and fun light and indoor outdoor connection plus who doesn't love the idea of showering in the sunlight in your own home and I've got home method members who've actually located that skylight directly above their shower itself others have located it above their bath so somewhere where you do stand and spend some time and you can look up and that kind of stuff it really does make the the full benefits of that skylight really felt in that space now I want to talk to you a bit about trends so I'm going to move quickly through some other loves that I have here so another love is that I absolutely love compact bathroom designs. Far too often I see so much floor plan real estate given to bathrooms and en-suites and they can be these big rooms with all of the fixtures located around the edges and then a great big dance floor sort of space in the middle. 
These bathroom areas, these wet areas, they're cost-intensive areas in your home. And what often happens is people make their floor plans of their wet areas really big and then they need to reduce the extent of tiling and lower the quality of fixtures in order to manage their budget overall. Your bathrooms need to be durable, they need to be easy to maintain and they'll take a bit of a punishment in family homes. So reducing the extent of tiling or cheapening your selections, that can be problematic. Instead, I recommend that you be economical with the floor plan itself. Freestanding baths, they can be space guzzlers in a bathroom layout. So instead, look at a back-to-wall bath or one that's flat on two sides or even a bath in hob, uh, which is personally my preference. Um, and if, you, uh, if you're trying to create, you know, get some good space economisation, doing a side-by-side bath and shower or what can be called that walk-through shower or a wet zone, that can be a really great way to economise on space in a bathroom plan. Review the required dimensions, okay, and test everything at one-to-one with a tape measure so that you get a sense of how much space you're actually creating. Inside Home Method, I supply a lot of detailed dimensions for bathrooms and we also discuss the layouts a lot in the group. Members will post their bathroom layouts for feedback and suggestions on how to improve them. And when it is such a cost-intensive area, that, you know, that support and help can be really uh, useful. Now, my next love is well-designed hallways. So, I don't believe that hallways need to be super wide to feel spacious. I do, however, believe that you want to avoid them looking like a hospital or a hotel corridor. And what I mean by this is that you don't want to create a hallway in your home which has doorways lining it, entering all the rooms that go off that hallway. It creates a cluttered feel to the hallway and it does very little to privatise those rooms from, you know, somebody moving through the hallway itself. I remember seeing a home design that had a hallway that was 1.6 metres wide, so super generous, and then every room on either side of that hallway was directly accessed from it. And even though the hallway was wide, it looked busy because you get this cluttered rhythm of doorways with architraves uh, surrounding them, skirting boards, you know, this kind of up and down movement, and then you have pictures hung between the doorways and then you get views into the rooms themselves. It just, It's just not great. Now, I've got a short tutorial video that I'll share in the resources just to show you more about this and how to design in a way that it avoids it so that you can you can see how to design your hallways and doors into adjacent rooms instead and think about that. Hallways, they can also be really enhanced by how you design the ceiling and the lighting. So be sure to review those elements in your design and think about thresholds and creating contrast with the spaces around. Make the hallway of your home a space to experience rather than just simply a passage that you're moving through. So check out episode 254 about ceiling design tips because that will be helpful for you in that regard. My next love is when home designs play with volume and light. I believe that volume is how we really shape the spaces that we live in and then light is how we animate them. And I I think, I really think that the use of volume and light and how effectively it is incorporated into the home design, I find that that's the significant difference between homes designed by builders and draftspeople and project home builders and then homes designed by experienced architects and building designers. You know, designing with volume and light in mind, it requires a designer or architect to design mentally in three dimensions. They actually need to be able to see the spaces that they're designing in their head whilst they design them. To design in section, as you've probably heard me discuss before. Now, I've done podcast episodes specifically on volume and light before, so I'll include links to those in the resources. We talk about volume and light at length. In Home Method, it's one of the things that I especially love seeing members understand and think about in their designs and really drive in their work with their designers. Using volume and light effectively, it's a key way to reduce the overall footprint or the floor area of your home whilst creating spaciousness and feel good functional spaces in your home. 
Now, the next love of mine, it's not a design love itself, but it does get you great design results. And in my experience, a much better designed home at the end of your journey. Plus, it helps reduce stress in your project experience and avoid a lot of mistakes and dramas. What, what is it? What is it? Well, it's this. I love informed homeowners. Informed and educated homeowners are the best. And guess what? Great architects and designers and builders, they also love having informed clients. I find that it's actually a great indicator of a good quality and personally secure professional. I've noticed personally over the years that those professionals who resent their clients being informed, they're often the professionals that like to drive the client to their own preferred outcome rather than facilitate a great outcome for the client's vision. When you're informed and educated for your project journey and especially about your home design, a few things happen. First is that you actually start thinking differently about your future home and who you need to help you make it happen and then how you're going to communicate with them about it. It changes who you choose and how you begin your design process. I did a Zoom consult with one of my Home Method members uh, yesterday actually and as part of the information that they shared with me for the Zoom consult, they included the brief that they'd given their designer. They'd used the brief builder from Home Method and as I read through it, I got such a comprehensive understanding of them as people and how they live and the things that they wanted and that they didn't want and where they needed the design to you know, really go to support all of that. And I could see how intentionally they'd process their own thoughts about the future home that they wanted in order to create this brief. You know, doing this and using something like the Brief Builder in Home Method to do it, it's a massive head start in the design process that just leapfrogs assumptions and it gets into the nuts and bolts of how your home needs to function and perform for you. And being educated and informed, it doesn't mean that you're telling the designer how to do their job though, okay? So if you're having to do that, you may have chosen the wrong designer and you need to rethink your selection. You want someone who adds to your process, who expands what is possible, not someone that you turn into a drafts person with your instructions and directions. When you're informed and educated for your project, you can also work so much more efficiently and effectively with your team. It can help you notice the red flags, ask the right questions and assess the design so much more effectively as well. I've actually seen homeowners very quickly realise that their designer actually doesn't know how to do passive solar design or how to create an energy efficient home. And so they've been able to pull the pin on working with them before things have gone too far. Being informed and educated about your project helps you avoid being taken advantage of and it also helps you be proactive, anticipate the steps ahead, be more involved and feel less swept along by the process and instead be more confident and in control of your own home project journey. Now, in addition to an informed homeowner, I love a collaborative approach and teamwork in renovation and building. It really is a place where teamwork makes the dream work and time and time again, I see how powerful it is for homeowners who embrace this and get the right group of professionals around them at the outset and then work together in their various fields of expertise to really optimise what is possible for the home overall. So this can include your designer, your builder, other specialist designers that you might want to use such as landscape or interior designers, your engineer and your energy efficiency assessor. Now for those who think that they can't afford to have all those people working with them from the beginning please know that you will spend that money anyway it will just show up in different areas such as higher construction costs because you weren't able to adopt efficiencies and streamline things whilst your home was only lines on a page and then in the costs of having to redo things to adjust drawings due to budget overruns or a longer construction timeline which can be more rent and higher labor costs or the cost of higher heating and cooling bills long term in the home 
Collaboration happens in every other sector of the design and construction industry. So why should you as the individual homeowner with so much at stake go without it? With the right people around you, you can make your project so much more fun as well. Now, before we wrap up this episode, I thought I'd talk a little bit about trends, what is trending right now in home design and also my view on trends as well. So the Merriam-Webster Dictionary, it defines a trend as a prevailing tendency or inclination or a current style or preference. Now, I've always found trends quite curious when it comes to home design and architecture, firstly, because we build homes that last for decades and decades, and trends are the fastest way to fix a home to a particular time frame, which can then mean it dates as time moves forward. And if we're someone who is really attracted to trends, we can find that our tastes and preferences can flex and change over time, which will mean needing to redo things in our homes in order to feel happy about our environments and be surrounded by things that we like and enjoy. And that's why most of what I teach here at Undercover Architect is what works over the long term and it's focused on the timeless qualities of great design. Designing a functional home that works well for you, that helps you feel great, that's more convenient, more fun and more calm and peaceful to live in. You know, those types of things really do work regardless of styles and trends happening at the time. It's also why I believe that you can wrap up the spaces and homes in pretty much any aesthetic that you want, as long as you get the core foundations of design right in the home and you can still create a great result. Now, the variety of aesthetics and tastes and preferences, it's what can make our world and the streets and the suburbs of it an interesting and a beautiful place to be. And our homes, they're supposed to reflect us personally. So choosing to be surrounded by the things that you love can help do that. Where I struggle with trends is when homeowners start to feel like they should be making their home look a certain way or when all of our homes start to look the same because everyone is doing the same thing, regardless of whether it's a fit for the individual homeowner or not. Now, there is another definition of trends that's much more about behavioural change that can happen over a period of time. And we are definitely seeing that happening in housing design, just due to how differently we've had to live our lives over the past couple of years, thanks to lockdowns, working from home and having to spend a lot more time at home. And what that in turn has told us about our homes and how well they do or don't support our lifestyles. And of course, this is largely due to the fact that we are not heading back to life as it was prior to March 2022. It appears that working from home is here to stay. Statistics actually show that significantly more of us are still continuing to work from home and that many would actually leave their job if they were required to come into their office full time. In May 2022, an article was published in ABC News discussing how COVID-19 is changing home design. And it talked about a home that was built as a demonstration home, as a display in the USA, in North Carolina, known as the Barnaby. It's the same uh, size as the average new house in Australia, which is around that 230 square metre mark. And the design was informed by the America at Home study, which surveyed more than 6,000 adults in 2020. Now, I'll pop a link in the resources, but I just want to read you a quote from the article. So it said this, it found that millennials and Gen Xers wanted relatively uncommon features such as germ-resistant countertops and flooring, greater energy efficiency, more storage for food or water, touch-free taps, appliances and toilets, and space for more than one home office. Post-pandemic, people have realised that their homes can do more and that better design matters, said Nancy Keenan, President and Chief Executive Officer of Darling Group Architecture Planning, the California-based firm that helped design the Barnaby Demonstration House. 
Key to making a home do more is something called the flex space or a room with multiple potential uses. What this boils down to is an open plan living room and kitchen and then lots of acoustically secure that is decently soundproofed, medium sized rooms that could be home offices, bedrooms, media rooms and the like. Along with this, there's a scattering of tiny pocket flex spaces that could be used as smaller studies or walk-in wardrobes. The idea is that a whole family, and the Barnaby was actually designed for a millennial couple with two young children where one parent works from home, they can use the one house for lots of different things all at the same time. Providing spaces in the home that can be used in many ways is key to a successful floor plan, especially when designing to smaller square footages, Ms Keenan said. Our clients are also exploring the viability of optioning flexible furniture systems and movable walls to enhance space flexibility. Inside, the differences are obvious. A front door vestibule for no contact home delivery, two pocket home offices, neither of which is a bedroom, a schoolroom, a quarantine room, a secret room behind a bookcase for being alone and a whopping four bathrooms. So four bathrooms and four bedrooms. It's interesting, hey? Now, yeah, I'll pop a link to to that article in the resources because you can see the floor plan in that. And it's an interesting home. Uh, Now, (laughs) the article also discusses that Since the onset of COVID, house values have outperformed those of units and dwelling values in regional areas have increased more than those in capital cities. And consensus from many of the industry professionals that you'll see quoted in articles like this one, you know, they can vary a bit, but they'll generally discuss that people are looking for more space, a better connection with the outdoors. They're more interested in natural light and ventilation. They're wanting to create better studies or work from home spaces that have some acoustic separation. And they're generally considering the comfort of their spaces, which makes sense, of course, you know, when you're locked indoors, the need for connection with nature and the outdoors, it has to really work in that space that you're forced to stay in. The article also quoted a Dr. Cecilia Bashiri, who's a senior lecturer at Griffith University School of Engineering and the Built Environment. And she said, residential space is becoming a habitat in the sense that we are going to function 24-7 in this space. Houses need to accommodate all interests and activities that in a normal situation you would experience outside. Now, I'm not sure personally, I, you know, I'm, not, I'm not necessarily saying that homeowners are wanting their homes to tick every want and need for their living environment, especially, you know, since we've been able to venture beyond them as lockdowns have ceased. However, I am seeing a greater consideration for the natural aspect of our home environments, their connection to community, the thresholds between inside and outside, the public and the private. And, then, you know, all of this has been considered much more closely. And then that in combination with ideas related to regenerative design, being more self-sufficient on our site people just wanting to generally wanting to live more sustainably there's definitely consideration for how to that can factor not only into your own block but then into the streets and the communities that you connect with and live in now house.com.au it does annual research and their 2022 house australia emerging home design trends report which was released in australia of this year It identifies the top trends based on search insights from those using the website. So they're seeing increased searches for specific spaces in homes related to home relaxation and entertainment, including, hilariously, the search for home bar was up uh, by 79% on last year. Um, Outdoor spaces and outdoor living features, they heavily increased in search traffic and there were big surges in terms like outdoor dining, decks and greenhouse and then also big increases in traffic for 
pools and associated items such as plunge pools and swim spas. And lastly, storage solutions are also seeing a lot of traffic. And this makes sense, you know, as people having to spend a lot more time at home, look, they look for solutions to improve home organisation and that sense of order that we know can bring calm and relaxation in a home. You know, it's that place for everything and, an, and everything in its place feeling, isn't it? So... Now, if you're interested in checking out any of the other information that I that's shared in the house report or in that article that I mentioned on the ABC, um, I'm going to pop a link in the episode's resources. Other online industry resources, they show what can be expected, you know, which is when we're spending a lot more time at home and we're disconnected from the places that we'd like to be instead. And many are spending money that they'd ordinarily spend on holidays on their homes instead. So there's a lot of the predicted and visible trends that focus on wellness and are also inspired by nature. And companies such as Pantone, Dulux, Benjamin Moore, they show much stronger, richer colour palettes in their colour trend predictions than we've been obviously seeing, you know, maybe a decade ago uh, or even more recently. Uh, those colours, they're inspired by nature and the outdoors. I see that we are really moving away from the, the greys and the beiges and the whites and the blacks. And, you know, natural materials are being celebrated in an effort to create that cosy and organic and luxurious feel to our homes. And this extends through to organic forms. And then it also feeds into an overall biophilic approach to design that's being explored more and more in residential design. Now, you don't have to look very far right now to see how much just the colour green is being used in all its shades in home interiors. And, you know, natural colour palettes, though, they don't just have to be green. They don't just have to be brown. And also biophilic design, it doesn't just mean lots of indoor plants. You know, there are beautiful and rich design and colour options that represent and are inspired by different natural environments that can be just as beautiful and effective to use. You know, I found... In, like going through my career, it used to be the case that it could take two years for trends that were happening in residential design in Europe to reach Australian shores. However, what we find now is that our inspiration is so much more global than it's ever been before. We have access and visibility via online platforms, social media and television, and you know we're seeing trends overseas in a much more immediate way. So there is a much more immediate translation into our homes. And this is happening everywhere. You know, Everybody's sort of seeing what everybody in other countries are doing. And when at that's desired by the homeowner, you know, as long as they can get access to the materials and products to execute locally, those trends are, are translating borders and, and moving across borders very, very quickly. I will encourage you, however, however, in your pursuit of this for your own home, just consider this, okay? I find that the best design, the most timeless styles and the enduring qualities of a great home, they involve ensuring that the home is of its place. And that means that it responds to and it suits its climate. It works with materials that are sourced locally. It celebrates what's great about its locale and its environment. And that then supports the kind of lifestyle that its occupants want to live. And it isn't somebody, something that can just be picked up and plonked anywhere and still work. So if you love designs and trends uh, and styles that are in locations that are very much unlike where you are climatically and culturally, then rather than just mimic them, mimicking them or trying to plug them into your local environment, consider how you'll actually interpret them in a way that enables you to be responsive to local conditions, respectful of your local context, and it still brings your own personal preferences and aesthetic loves into the home that you're creating. Trends, they can drive conformity. And I don't think that we're meant for conformity. You know, our homes, our suburbs, our streets, I don't believe that they're meant for conformity either. You know, but where trends are actually a result of us questioning a previous version of conformity and the status quo and assessing whether our homes truly suit our lifestyles anymore, then that can be a, a good and intentional thing. So remember, you do you. 
And the thing is, get to know you so that you know the best way that you can do you. All right. Your project journey, it can be at least two years in time frame, if not longer. So if you're aiming to have a home that others think is stylish and on trend, you're going to need a crystal ball for a few years time to know what that's going to look like. There's a lot about trends that are simply about ensuring that you have to keep spending money in order to keep up so that you can stay in. Instead, think about what your loves are in home design. What are the features, the spaces, the elements that you'd love to include because of what they'll help you do or how they'll help you spend time in your home. You know, what about your loves is timeless and enduring. And then what might be more temporary and fleeting and about what's just in at the moment. And what trends are actually about you wanting to live differently to how we've lived in the past. There's lots there for you to consider and mull over. And I hope you found this episode helpful. Now, before I go, let me remind you about two things. Firstly, I have got a full and free PDF uh, transcript of this quite chunky episode. It ended up being chunkier than I planned it to be. Um, But you can grab that by heading to undercoverarchitect.com forward slash 255. That's the numbers 255. Uh, And I've got all the resources of the articles, all those kinds of things mentioned there so that you can check them out further if you'd like to. And then also, if you're listening to this at the time of its release or before early November 2022, please join me for my free live online workshop, which is called Four Factors to Make or break your project and I've got the times uh, and dates to register and you can grab your free spot by heading to undercoverarchitect.com forward slash register r-e-g-i-s-t-r and then both of those links they will be in the resources for this podcast episode which will also be in the show notes on your podcast player of choice Remember too, if you'd like to be more educated and informed and access support and guidance in your project journey and home design, then you can join me and our amazing community in my flagship program, Home Method. As always, thank you for tuning in and for letting me be your secret ally. Until next time.